Well, is it anti-Trump? Yes. Then I think we're probably fine. <laughs> <laughs> Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Sit me down. Say it straight. Another story on the way. Who got the truth? Welcome back to episode 13 of Acquired, the show where we talk about technology acquisitions that actually went well. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. We have a very special guest today visiting us from GeekWire, Todd Bishop. Hey, it's great to be here. So great to have you. Uh, I'm a a fan. I'm a listener. I think yours might be the only podcast that I've listened to every episode of. Whoa. Which speaks to the fact that you're still relatively new. But uh, yeah, I I listen on on my walks on the weekend and uh, really love what you guys do on the show. Thank you, Todd. Yeah. We're glad to have you. Yeah, it's a privilege. And uh, for this episode, it's going to be particularly interesting. Um, we're talking about the publishing industry. So we uh, we wanted to have Todd on because we thought it would be um, particularly fascinating to listeners to get a little inside info from, um, from someone who's kind of experiencing the results of the acquisition firsthand. So uh, before we get into what the uh, the episode's on today, a uh, couple couple of uh, administrative things. First one, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It's uh, it is tremendously helpful for the future of the show as we uh, invest in better tech and we get you know more and more guests on and we're able to do more things with the show. Um, appreciate you doing that and doing any sort of sharing on on social media that you uh, you feel is appropriate. Um, secondarily, we started a Slack community and we've seen some really great uh, uptake in that. So yeah, it's been really fun to chat with all you guys and um, uh, please would love more people to join. But uh, for people who are already in, keep the questions and discussion coming. It's been great. Yeah. And uh, we've got some some email asking, well, how do I join? Um, it's, it's on the acquired website. If you're on desktop, it's a little widget on the right side. You just enter your email and then it emails you how to do it. And if you are on mobile, it is down below the posts. All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny. I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the visa numbers, I just pulled up my visa notes. Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's, what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added 
arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. So without further ado, uh, our episode this week is on Facebook's acquisition of Push Pop Press. Try that. Try bleh. Say that five times fast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, David, do you want to dive in with the history and facts? As always. So um, very interesting one here. Uh, The company, as Ben mentioned, is Push Pop Press, which not many people have heard of, uh, but it was founded in February 2010 by two guys, Mike Matas and Kimon, uh, I'm probably going to butcher his last name, Sinceris, I believe. Um, And they were both alums of Apple. Um, And they had been a designer, one a designer and one an engineer at Apple for about four or five years. uh, And they had worked on the iPhone uh, in the years leading up to the launch. Yeah, and as a, a total Apple nerd, these guys are legendary. I mean, you look at their portfolios. They've designed everything from the, you know, the charging battery icon on the front of the iPhone for the first six software releases to maps to um, on the ben, map. Ben, you're, you're stealing my thunder here. Sorry. I literally sorry. have in my notes. So, yeah, these guys, they weren't just any Apple engineers and designers. Uh, between the two of them, they designed the first... Uh, the first versions of the camera app, the photos app, the maps app, the settings app, the battery display, um, the photos app for the iPad, and time machine and photo booth for the Mac. Well, I should stop doing anything from memory ever. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Quite, quite impressive, guys. Um, And interestingly, while they were working on Push Pop Press, which was only for about two years... um, Mike was also working on the side. I don't know which was the side gig and which was the permanent gig, um, but he was one of the first people working on Nest. And nobody knew what Nest was at this point, but um, they were the secretive startup uh, from former Apple uh, folks. And um, Mike was also part of that team. He was, and, and Mike's had his, his hands in really great software for a long time. He's, uh, for the Seattleite listeners out there, he's actually a native Seattleite and worked on uh, some really incredible Mac software that is is pixel perfect called Delicious Library from uh, Delicious Monster right. with uh, Will Shipley. And that, you know, as a, I, you know, yet again, an Apple nerd and, and like admirer of great software is is really kind of setting the bar for creating great UX. And one of the greatest startup names ever, right? Delicious monster, yes. (laughs) Indeed. So um, we have these two superstar uh, engineers and designers from Apple. They leave, they start Push Pop Press. What is Push Pop Press, one might ask? So at TED, at the TED conference in spring of 2011, they unveil uh, at the conference what they've been working on. And it was an attempt to reimagine the book. Uh, what does 
the book look like on uh, on a mobile computer, both tablets and phones, smartphones. Um, and the first book that they launched was in conjunction with Al Gore, um, who interestingly was an Apple board member and also um, uh, at the time, I believe, still affiliated with uh, the venture capital firm Kleiner Perkins, which was an investor in Nest. Mm. Um, and uh, they worked with him to launch his book called Our Choice, uh, which was about the environment. Um, and it was an incredibly beautiful uh, app. It was released as an app within the uh, Apple App Store. It was only on iOS. Um, and the technology behind it that Pushpop Press uh, created enabled highly, highly immersive interactions with, um, again, really a reimagining of what a book was with interactive content, with audio, with video, all seamlessly integrated into this experience. Yeah, and one of the things to note about that was, you know, it's it's still not it's not an easy thing to imagine a really immersive, beautiful, um, kind of perfect animation curve um, application like this. That that alone is hard. The engineering, especially on on those real early um, iOS devices, is particularly difficult. And these were kind of the the two guys in the world that could that could build that you know envision that that incredible experience, and then. Uh, yeah, we're, we're talking early iPads and like iPhone four four S time frame. Yeah, um, and actually, interestingly, now we we can't verify this, confirm or deny, but it has been reported in the press that this actually might have gotten into them into a little bit of trouble um, because apparently, again, according to um, some articles out there, we don't know if this is true or not, but apparently, Steve Jobs uh, noticed when these guys left and noticed what they were working on. And he believed that um, a lot of the technology that they used to build Push Pop Press was actually alarmingly similar to some of the patented technology that they had developed while they were at Apple mm. working on iBooks. So he, again, supposedly got a little upset about this. Hmm. Hmm. Good thing uh, there's no uh, non-compete provisions in California, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. Well, this was actually an IP issue. Right. Um, this was a patent issue, supposedly. Um, so uh, this was uh, this was after they launched at TED in, in 2011. And then interestingly, at WWDC that year in June, um, not everybody at Apple was too upset because... Uh, our choice and Pushpop Press actually won an Apple Design Award uh, for the iPad as being one of the best designed apps, according to Apple, on the iPad that year. Um, but nonetheless, very shortly thereafter, in the beginning of August of 2011, Facebook announces that they have acquired Pushpop Press for an undisclosed amount. Um, and again, supposedly, according to these articles, the fact that um, Jobs was kind of on the warpath about this and upset about some of the potential IP violations regarding books um, and apps um, might have contributed to the outcome here and not continuing to go along as a standalone company. No mm. way for us to know. Interesting hypothesis. I never never took it there before. I, I, a note on this acquisition, I think it's safe to assume that it's a pretty small sum. Um, not, you know, Not a big team, very early stage. But what it did represent, I remember thinking this at the time, I had, I had bought the book. It was incredible to play with. Um, had great reverence for sort of the technology behind it. And I was thinking, man, Facebook just keeps buying up and sort of, we don't know if this was an aqua hire, but had done several acquisitions before of 
teams that were just incredible iOS designers and developers. And I was like, they really have a war chest there. And thinking back to that time period, I mean, this was still a great state of flux for for Facebook in the mobile era. They were doing the hybrid web thing. They hadn't managed to to translate their, you know... The 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 Facebook apps were not native on iPhone and, and Android. They were doing the the rapper, you know, development, it was, it was a mess. Right. And their mobile future was uncertain with their ad revenues. I and mean, they yep. hadn't translated their cash cow from desktop yet. And, you know, as we know, they were, they had become incredibly successful with the, uh, the newsfeed ad. It's one of the best ad units in history, but, but you're right. There were times back then, uh, I remember some, I, I believe, I don't know if they were public or not at this point, but there were big questions about whether they could translate their success into mobile apps and into, into yeah this was mobile right in around the time there was an infamous recode interview at the recode conference or or uh oh, this might have been before recode uh probably was at the, back at the all things d uh, conference. at the all things d was conference, this the hoodie? Part of the way. yeah the hoodie where <laughs> where mark zuckerberg was being grilled <laughs> on stage by well uh walt mossberg and kara swisher and yes. he had a hoodie on and he was sweating yes. profusely and he was being grilled about mobile and facebook's missing of mobile uh and he ended up taking the hoodie off and it was and then it had that like that illuminati or something yeah inside it It was like very very embarrassing moment Uh, but others have speculated that that was that moment was the turning point when he realized that facebook needed to go all in on mobile um, and they really did after that yeah Uh, and this acquisition was part of it now interestingly then we'll, we'll wrap up the history and facts here um as, as Ben mentioned, we don't know the price of the acquisition. We have to assume it was quite small. Pushpop Press had never raised any money. It was just the two of them and a couple other people who were working on it. Um, but when they were acquired, they actually, the founders actually wrote on the website, um, on their blog, um, that they were this was just about them and the technology. They were not going to continue um, public, uh, in the book industry. They, they write, although Facebook isn't planning to start publishing digital books, the ideas and technology behind Push Pop Press will be integrated with Facebook, giving people even richer ways to share their stories. With millions of people publishing to Facebook every day, we think it's going to be a great home for Push Pop Press. Cough. Publishing. Cough. Cough. <laughs> Publishing, not books. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, let's get into it. I mean, well, just, well, just to wrap it up quickly. So then the team goes, the two of them go on and they work on two things that they're still working on at Facebook. Um, First is Facebook Paper, which many people don't remember, but this is a standalone app that Facebook launched in early 2014 that's basically a Flipboard competitor. Yeah, and if you look at this, this was the first thing, um, I think it might have been conditional upon the acquisition, but uh, Mike Mattis got to run Facebook Creative Labs, and this was kind of the product to launch out of Creative Labs. And the animations and the sensibilities from from uh, Pushpop Press's book are just like right there in paper. I mean, the whole immersive design philosophy, very smooth curves between things, you, you can tell it's the same team. And although paper, it still exists, you can still download it in the App Store. It's only on iOS, uh, much mm-hmm. like Push Pop Press. Um, hasn't been a huge success, but it informs the real, it was the Trojan horse to the real meat here is that this Push Pop Press becomes, and, and these guys are, are the product leaders of Facebook Instant Articles. Yeah, and I think uh, Mike was and recently left. But uh, but Kimon, or I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that, is still there. Ah, Mike, what are you doing now? If uh, call us, <laughs> I, I, I believe. I, so I follow him on Instagram. He's like a tremendous nature photographer, and he's 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 doing a lot of traveling. I think he's taking some time. 
<laughs> I'm, uh, I'm sure well-deserved. Um, but Instant Articles is really, I'm sure many of our listeners know about it, but this is really game-changing um, uh, product that, that Facebook launched last year. Um, and it was interestingly, Todd, I'm sure you'll appreciate this, the, the fact that they were working on it was scooped by David Carr at the yeah. New York Times um, at the in fall of 2014, and then it ends up coming out in spring of 2015. And I, I believe the opening line of his article where he talks about this is that Facebook is like a big dog in the park that is galloping at you, <laughs> and you don't know if it wants to play with you <laughs> or eat you. Oh my god, that is so perfect! So perfect. That, if you that. are a publisher, exactly, exactly. Boy, I, I'm I'm in the park, man. Yeah, <laughs> you uh, guys are in the park. We are, we are. So, uh, in preparation for this, I spent quite a bit of time with our analytics, just getting a sense for. What we get from Facebook, what we give to Facebook, um, we get roughly 10% of our traffic from Facebook. And oh. is it the largest single? It's the largest. Yep. It's it, other than organic search. Yep. So if you look at organic search, it's you know close to half. But um, in terms of this, uh, in terms of actual you know dedicated inbound uh, referrers, um, so so it's quite a bit of traffic. Now, in the old school publishing mentality. Publishers would think, I've got to get users on my site. Yeah. That is where I'm, you know, converting them uh, into, you know, potential e-commerce customers, yep. or I'm getting them on my email list. Exactly. And I think Instant Articles is one of the best examples of that mentality shifting for publishers that are a little more progressive. And and we should say yeah. a word too about what it is for people who haven't yeah. really dug into the product. This is a major change in the way. Um, content and articles uh, that is owned and written by publishers are is being distributed so before instant articles if somebody shared a, a link to an article on facebook and you clicked on it on mobile you would be taken to the mobile browser and read the article on the on the page as todd was saying the publisher's page but with instant articles publishers are actually giving their content over to Facebook. It's being hosted on Facebook servers and then displayed in a very push pop press like um, beautiful, immersive um, uh, reader that loads instantly rather than clicking through to the mobile web and waiting for uh, everything to load. And more, even more importantly for this discussion, um, Facebook can sell and serve its own advertising within the article. Now, publishers can too, but and if publishers sell the ads in the article, they keep 100% of the revenue, but Facebook can also sell in and then they keep 30% of the revenue. Yeah, and uh, to, to put some numbers behind um, the how much faster it is, they say an, an average um, web page article takes about eight seconds to load, and people just bounce off that a tremendous amount. They Especially click in, on they, mobile. Yeah, yeah, and they say it's 10 times faster in an instant article. Yeah, I can't count the number of times when I've gone, this is not worth it. I'm going back and finding something else to, to read. So I think that whole construct and that assertion of theirs is very valid based on just casual everyday user experience. But this is a mentality shift for publishers because, you, you know, you've got so many readers on Facebook already. And, and the old school mentality is, hey, we, we, get, we need to get them on our site. But when you start talking about the monetization, that's when it starts to go, okay, well, you know, to go back to your dog park analogy, maybe I'll let you know Facebook. You know, I don't know. I don't want to lick say my sick. face. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That, that's much better than what I was going to say. Thank you. 
<laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, that is the thing. Um, we've actually experimented with instant articles a little bit. And I should say, this is part of a sort of broader set of these types of approaches. You know, Google has accelerated mobile pages, mm-hmm. very similar. We've actually had a lot more success with AMP than we have with instant Mm -hmm. articles. Um, Apple News, of course, and then Flipboard. Um, You know, all these things are examples of publishers saying, hey, okay, the articles don't need to be on our site, but what do we get in return Mm -hmm. for allowing you to host them? And really for us, it's the monetization. With Facebook instant articles, Apple News, we have not yet seen the kind of user base that Mm -hmm. would justify putting a lot of effort into it and because the revenue just isn't there yet. Google is actually a bit of an exception because they're so integrated with DFP, Double Click for Publishers, yep, yep. and it's our native system. Google gets it, you know. So in that way, I think Google may have a bit of an advantage in terms of the monetization, and then in attracting publishers in this yeah. whole instant article world. So that's that's our view. Yeah. Even though uh, Facebook probably has a significant advantage in terms of traffic. Exactly. Yes. But. Google has much better monetization tools for you. Yes, for us as a publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, but but there's no denying the reality of Facebook's yeah, user, so user base. I'm curious, you know, how do how do you and John think about this? Yeah. Like, you know, in in the we were talking before we started about you know old web publishers. You know, Todd yeah. worked at the Philadelphia Inquirer. I worked at the Wall Street Journal back in the day, and you know. I mean, the cost structure at the Journal. We spent a billion dollars every year on everything putting out the paper and um you know creating the website and all this and it was all about you know creating that relationship with the reader yeah and now we live in a different world how do yeah it's definitely changed um we talk about our publishing process just as an example we'll publish a story on wordpress and then every reporter for us the next step is to go to facebook and you're really not done publishing until you've published a link on facebook and so obviously Instant Articles takes that a step further because it's just automatically populating that with the, the cached version, the uh, the push-pop press version, essentially. So, you know, it's just you think of your readers in a much broader way than just the people who are on your site. You think about other things, too. Like we've been experimenting a lot with retargeting and the whole notion of once a reader leaves your site, uh, you can still serve them ads from yourself for our, for our events, for example, or for your advertisers on behalf of your advertisers on Facebook. So mm-hmm. we, we think about it as it's much more holistic now. Yeah. And in that way, Facebook has broadened the horizons, yeah. right? They've taken away the audience, but they've also opened the door for yeah. you to get there. Well, it used to be. I mean, uh, every publisher, large and small, had their own ad sales force, right? right? right. And that was where a huge part of the costs you know, at the Journal and elsewhere were... Um, but the ability to sell that audience was so limited relative to a Facebook. And so now you live in a world where it, it probably doesn't really make sense for you for, as a publisher to invest a lot in your own ads if you can just well, click a button. Well, I, well, I think a few people back at the office are yeah. going to be listening very intently to yes. this. <laughs> so we have a, we have a, a strong... Well, but not to have a... Yeah. Not to have, you know, I mean, we had hundreds of ad yes, sales people exactly. at, at the... You know, I'm sure you guys don't have hundreds we of have ad three. sales. We yeah. have three. We have three. And the... Advantage there, obviously, is that in terms of direct sales, you can provide more value, you can provide custom packages, you can bundle in events, and so your margins are higher um, than just going through some kind of network buy. So it, for us, at least at our size, there's still a big value in having direct sales. Not, not to mention you actually know what experience is being delivered to your reader. 
I mean, you, you don't have to hope and pray that some network is inserting the, a thing that you want next to your content. Oh, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So that, that is the, the control issue is something there. And that's all about just making sure you're delivering the right value to the reader and to the, to the sponsor. Hmm. Yeah. For, for accelerated mobile pages for Google and for, for Facebook, Facebook instant articles, do you guys do your own ad sales or do you trust the, uh, do you hand that off to them and take the, the so 30% cut? We've only done a little testing with instant articles and actually it's a whole other issue. We've run into a, a problem with the plugin created by Facebook and automatic, the creator of WordPress. And this is, like I said, this could be a rat hole. So you can edit this out later, Ben. <laughs> but they, they, need, they have some work to do on that plugin. And so we haven't been able to fully test that. Um, and, and that's the plugin that it theoretically makes it easier for publishers that, that Facebook can go in and automatically suck out your content and then put it into an instant article without you doing a whole lot of work. That's right. Exactly. Um, for Google Accelerated Mobile Pages, just because of the extension from DFP, all of our ads can go there. So we can, if we direct sold an ad that appears on the site, it can go into the into instant or you can go into AMP into accelerated mobile pages. Wow, huge advantage to Google it, on that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, as a, a consumer and a reader, I'm I'm much more a fan of Facebook and instant articles yep. because you get this experience where I'm in a native experience. It's already downloaded all the content for the article, and I just go right into it. And on mobile pages, it, you know, it's always. Whenever you're on a website, you're keenly aware that you're on a website and it's not quite native. Yep. And so whenever, um, for those of you who haven't or, or don't know if you've hit an accelerated mobile page yet, it's when you search for something on Google and there's a, a result that's for a news story that sort of keeps you on the search results page, but there's an article overlaid on top of it. Um, and I'm always a little disappointed, like, yeah, it's a lighter website and it's accelerated, but it's still kind of a web page and it would be nicer if it was, if it was, you know, more native. Of course, pop press like experience. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to see, to hear leg up. So let's, uh, yeah. I definitely want to keep this conversation going, but let's, let's do it. Let's move into acquisition category. So, right. so, uh, it, even before you read their, their press release, um, I, I said, that it's primarily a people acquisition, secondarily a technology acquisition. And uh, it sure sounds like um, we're in agreement there. Yeah. Well, I had primarily technology, secondarily people, but, Ooh. you know, hey, you know, it's, it's all semantics. Yeah, I'd have a hard time disagreeing with that. I mean, <laughs> my question is, what were they doing between 2011 and 2016? You know, if it was a talent acquisition or a technology acquisition, it took them a while. I guess it was 2015 that they came out with instant articles. But I think paper. I think oh, for a while they gotcha. were kind of playing gotcha. around with what what is the thing that we're going to build. And that was sort of why Creative Labs was its own little yeah. entity in Facebook before paper came gotcha. out. But I, um, I think the team for paper actually got pretty large, and it was a, a sizable effort where – I don't know the exact quote, but I remember Zuckerberg announcing it and saying, like, this is like a new direction for Facebook. Like, this is the new way you experience Facebook. And obviously, and he was of, right. It just ended up becoming within the Facebook app. Itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I think was interesting. The other thing is that, but like you were saying earlier, the core Facebook app was such a mess yeah. in those early days. I think it's it's amazing how much functionality has been brought back into that app and how... Um, how, how big that piece of software has become. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you want to okay. go what would have happened otherwise? Yeah, well, this might, this was, I think this merits an interesting detour. Let's say they'd stayed independent and continued trying to reinvent the book. Mm -hmm. Good idea? Bad idea? How does that play out? 
there's no way they don't get picked up. And if it's not Facebook, it's someone else. But we'll all suspend that. Like, I think it's they're so good and it's so inexpensive when they've built is so interesting to so many players that, like, I don't think this scenario exists. But let's go down to what would have happened if they had, had kind of reinvented the book. You know, well, all of a sudden they're competing with Amazon. And they're getting sued by Steve Jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, it would have required, for that to really work as a business, it would have required content producers to embrace a, like writers, authors, to embrace a whole new way of, uh, a whole new medium, basically. And what's interesting about that versus what it became with instant articles is, um, you know, the the authors of, of content, uh, publishers, don't do anything different. It just Facebook sort of, you know, does its magic and makes it look beautiful. And they can. Facebook wants you to. There's all these kind of unique things that you can do with um, data visualization and parallaxing, disp- uh, you know, images and things like that. But you don't have to. No. Yeah. And I think probably very few. It's splashy when 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 publishers do, but they probably don't do a lot of it. Um, probably where, hard to justify the ROI on that. Yeah, too. whereas you would have to create a, a massive behavior change in terms of producers uh, to really reinvent the book. So likely it would have been hard. Um, well, one, one way we could see that um, yeah, proxy for that playing out is with iBooks Author. Apple came out with that software to create textbooks, and it's supposed to be exactly the same thing. Like, you know, things that move, things that slide, interactive ways of learning. And when they announced it on stage, you know, I was thinking, like, this is really going to require some serious things that Apple is not necessarily good at. Like, they're going to need a lot of salespeople, a lot of relationship managers, like, really to go and and convince the five major textbook publishers, Pearson and and, and the likes of them, that, like, this is their future. And I I just don't think they doubled down on that. Yeah, it didn't, didn't work. It, yeah, it seems like the other natural acquirer here would have been Amazon. Am, am, am I off base on that? I mean, just given the, the book's angle. Yeah, sure seems like it. Or Barnes & Noble, maybe, if they yep. were back in 2011, you know. They could. They were still sort of in the game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Digital that books. is cool to think about. Like, what if, um, what if Kindle were beautiful? <laughs> oh, no no offense to anyone like working on Kindle, but <laughs> it's gotten it's gotten a lot better. It has gotten a lot better. I love Kindle. It's probably my one of my most used apps and, and devices. I use both the app and the device. Yeah. But um, and yeah. the the Oasis is pretty darn sweet. Do you have one? I, I've used one. Yeah, I've is tested it, one. Oh, out. I would love to get one, but I just can't yeah. justify like three hundred dollars for it. Yeah, and of course, e ink is a whole different game than what we're talking about here. But yeah. but yeah, there's there's still lots of room for improvement in the whole digital ebook landscape. Yes, lots for sure. lots of room. Um, I, I do want to raise the point too. I think they had the luxury of being super super selective of if they were going to get acquired, who it was going to be by. Um, they strike me as the the kind of people that if they didn't have a tremendous respect for the company and didn't feel that their principles of, of design and, and beautiful experience were sort of like embodied in the efforts of whatever that company was trying to do, I don't think they would have gone. Yeah. So I think that that narrows. Especially, I mean, they they hadn't like, raised any money, so there were no you know evil VCs on the board you know forcing them to sell. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I think you're probably right, and not to mention that um, you know uh, was it. Mike, I think, was you know working on the side or full time at Nest, so 
Um, yeah, this was not a uh, this was not a forced sale by any means. No. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts. So frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote unquote, energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers, such as AWS and Google and Azure, who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com slash acquired. That's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. All right, let's let's jump back into um, to tech themes because I, I think we can really unpack some some cool stuff with Todd here. Um, what uh 
Well, uh, Todd, why don't you why don't you go first? Yeah, it, this really does speak to the, the the broadening horizons for publishers and and the risks and opportunities that come along with that. I mean, this is. Uh, I think a lot of you know I've been been around since the days when I had one daily deadline for you know one story that needed to get to the printing press by eleven at night. You know, so uh, not to not to date myself here, but I, I remember those days too from two thousand nine <laughs> yeah. at the Wall Street Journal. So it was not that long ago. So I think you've gone through a few transitions there for publishers. First, obviously to the web, and then to mobile, and now in some ways you're seeing a fourth transition to you know beyond your own property. What, yeah. what, what needs what needs to happen? What can you do? Who can you reach? And how can you monetize it? And that really is the, the big theme for me here. Yeah, so Todd, I've had a crazy idea for, for a startup for a while, and I like this is the perfect time to poke holes in it. Could you start a publisher at this point that doesn't have a website that purely exists on, on social? It's, it's, it's only on AMP, it's only on Instagram. Well, one might goals. argue it's, this is what BuzzFeed is, but... Mm. They, they, yeah, they have a destination site. I'm curious how, how much they're a destination versus social, but... I think you could, and I think you should. And uh, that would be fantastic. I think you should do yeah everything but a website. So in other words, publish on Facebook. And the the Verge has been talking about this, and I know yeah. I think their new gadget blog is focused almost exclusively on Facebook. Hmm. And um, I think it's the Verge. I, I get all those the Virgin and Gadget and Gizmodo. They just blend together in my mind after I read their <laughs> they're stories. All good. I'm a big yeah, Verge fan. But, yeah, uh, well, it is the Verge, right? It's the, the, I, did the gadget blog just on Facebook? I'm sure there's listeners will correct but, me on that one. Yeah, I don't, David. I'm a big GeekWire fan. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the Verge and GeekWire are competitors. But yes, I'm a big GeekWire fan yeah, right, as well. Yeah, well okay. um, yeah. but, but it's interesting. I uh, one of my themes was was hinting at earlier is this sort of reinvention of the publishing industry. Yeah. I'm curious how you guys at GeekWire, I mean, you, you're such a, you are a news site, of course, right. probably first and foremost, but there's so much more to what you do. You're a community. Yeah. Um, and, and how do you think about life and your business model in, in this yeah, new world? Absolutely. So I can share a few broad details. So about roughly 60% of our revenue has nothing to do with the website. And it's not because it's coming from Facebook or anything else. Yeah. It doesn't have, it's, it's probably not accurate to say it has nothing to do with the website, but we get event revenue. I mean, that is a major driver of our business. And you were saying, you know, the, your ad sales efforts are focused on a holistic package, right? right. It's, you're, you're getting ad units on the site, but you're also getting sponsorships at events. And, you know, it's, you're offering something beyond just a website. Right. The way we look at it is that our news brings people to the site and then we create a community around that news. And then the question is, okay, you've got this great community. How can you provide value to that community and to the people who want to reach it? And if you think about it in that abstract way, then all these really interesting possibilities come up. If you just think about it as I've got people coming to my website and I want to serve them ads, then it's too simplistic and it's, you know, a decade ago mentality. Mm -hmm. So this is all part of that broader evolution and how publishers think. In, in thinking about instant articles, uh, some of the bigger publishers that have this sort of uh, uh, a, a trained behavior of a whole city going to their website every morning, much like they used to read the paper at their, their dining room table every morning, and they worry about doing something like this because it untrains that habitual behavior of going to the site. Do you guys worry at all about sort of losing that, oh, they don't, they're not used to going to GeekWire anymore? Certainly there's a core set of your readers who are, will always do that. Um, mm -hmm. But so much anymore, the front door the front yeah the front door of your website is not your home page it's an article that somebody comes into and when we think about the design of the site we think about that 
you know, this is really the place that people are coming to. So, mm-hmm. and that's driven by social. It's the fact that people are getting the, the link off of Twitter, yeah. off of Facebook, and they're coming into your site through the back door. Essentially. It's the phenomenon that I know I subscribe to. I'm, I'm sure probably we all do, and many of our listeners of, you know, I don't go to the news anymore. The news comes to me. Right. Yeah. So if you're not playing in all those that whole entire ecosystem, then you know you've got to you're taking a big risk. And there are some people who can do it successfully. And you know there's some there's a, a, a great uh, biotech site in Seattle uh, run by a guy named Luke Timmerman, and he's he does ninety nine dollar a year subscriptions mm-hmm. and um, has built a successful one man business out of it. So there's there's different approaches, yeah. but f- for the most part, you've if you're going to be a, a, a a holistic publisher in this world, you've got to play in all this stuff. Hmm. Hmm. It's interesting because I was going to bring up one of the tech trends that identifies to me is sort of the, the corporate unbundling away from core competency where you can decide to take a dependency on a different business for something that you're deciding is, is not the thing that is unique and differentiating to you. And so one yeah. one thing that I'll um, bring up here is Ben Thompson um, has has a great theory. I was about wondering how long we would go in this episode <laughs> before we reference time to strategy in this episode is thirty two minutes. Um, I actually I don't know what market it'll be, but uh, he has a, a, a great theory about okay I can be a one man independent publisher because I have this you know a very sustainable business model where people pay me directly and um, I know that right. I'm not a destination site so. Um, there, I need to run extremely lean because I only have you know this very specific business model that allows me to do that. And then on the other side of the continuum, you have the New York Times, and they can afford to do all things for all people because they have just all eyes on them. They're the first thing that people check. I mean, there there are very few of those who have survived the the Facebookization of the front door of the internet. And it, it's it's interesting to see like how publishers in the middle play with that. And I think, Todd, you, you raised a great point that you sort of have to embrace that, you know, it's it's the world around our publication. I, I just looked, pulled up our analytics to maybe shed some light on this. So about 45% of our inbound traffic is from organic search. About 22% is from social, uh, all forms of social. I'm sorry, 22% is from direct, and then about 18% is from social. Hmm. So you get a sense for you, We still have a pretty good direct oh, yeah. audience there. Wow. but there's That's actually but, crazy to me that that organic search is still by far the largest. It is, and I don't know. Um, that, that may speak to quirks of our audience yeah. or our site, but and I don't know that that's the case for everybody. And that does not include direct. That does not include wow. direct. Yeah, wow. that's organic search. That's that's the testament to the omnibar right there. I mean, I think yes. as much yeah. as we're yeah, 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 good point. We're like people. But don't Google know the is serving between... ads on. The, wow. Well, it, just go buy some Google shares right no, now. Nobody knows the difference. We do not dispense investment advice on this show. <laughs> <laughs> we should probably be legally bound to say that more often. But we, uh, you know, it's it's a. Most people don't know the difference between you know typing in words and typing in a URL. Yeah, right. And so they're 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 I going to the right. internet. They're typing in the words, and if GeekWire is the first thing that comes up with the information about what they're looking for, they hit it. Right. And you know, I, I, I it's it's interesting only that well the, the interesting nuance there to me is that more people are being active about the news that they choose to learn about rather than reactive to whatever comes up in their Facebook feed. Right. I don't, I don't think I was giving yeah. people enough credit yeah and like i said we may not be representative of the the broader trends mm, out there yeah. there are some quirks in that's our still audience. that's fascinating yeah huh. um but you uh, 
it, would it be fair to say that you guys at least have reimagined um, your product from being journalism to being a community or, or, or like not journalism ways, is the wrong word, but it, from being a news site to yeah, being a community. Like. I'd say it's still at its core, a news site. And that, that's the thing. When you look at the drivers of the business, the, you know, doing quality news, trying to break news, that, that, that really is your ultimate competitive advantage. And that gets to what you're talking about, Ben. It's like focus on your core competencies. You yep. know, developing a social network is not you know, my core competency. I was trained as a journalist and most of the folks at the, the company were. And so that, that really gets to what you're saying there. Yeah, and I think uh, I should just say, like, you guys do a really amazing job of yeah, that. Yeah, we should a- say, too. Yeah, we are both big fans. Oh, thanks. Uh, GeekWire is, I'm sure for all of our listeners in Seattle, are already fans. Um, but uh, for people who are not in Seattle, you probably also have heard of GeekWire. But it is a fantastic technology news site. Um, and and, and a, I think, especially speaking at Madrona as a VC here in the Seattle community, just a linchpin of the whole technology community in the Northwest. Um, Thanks. Um, well, and I should say, only 30% of our traffic is Washington State. So Washington oh, wow. State is our largest individual market, but it's not the majority of our traffic. It speaks to a couple things. First, there's intense interest in what's going on here from other parts of the world. Yeah. But we founded the site on the premise that Seattle and the Pacific Northwest deserve a national and international techno- technology news site of their own. And so, so the traffic kind of bears that out. And that's, that's my stump speech. That's my elevator pitch. <laughs> I'll be on a future episode. I'll be on episode yeah. 150 of Acquired, the, uh, the acquisition of GeekWire. The acquisition of GeekWire. <laughs> Washington as as uh, largest single geography, but not a majority. You and acquired both. <laughs> there you go. Nice, <laughs> awesome, perfect. <laughs> We're basically the we could do we could do a merger. No, <laughs> um, the, uh, we'll talk after. So we'll, we'll talk after. Yeah, that's not not on the on, not on the record. Um, so uh, yeah, and, and, I, and the other I, we've covered you know great tech themes here. The other one I wanted to bring up quickly is. Ben Thompson, um, his aggregation theory, uh, which we've talked about also on the show before, but basically is the theory that, you know, in the past, and it's, it's represented nowhere better than publishing and journalism, where in the past you needed to aggregate um, distribution. As, as a distributor, you needed to aggregate, you know, uh, you needed to aggregate journalists and you needed to aggregate delivery routes of newspapers and all this, everything basically looking backwards from the customer. You didn't really care about the customer. The customer needed to come to you. In the internet world, you need to aggregate the customers and then all of the producers will come to you. And and this is what's happened with Facebook here with, with yeah. instant articles. Um you know, they cater to the customers. They care about the user experience. They care about making it beautiful, which is why they acquired Push Pop Press, so that the customers come to them. Uh, or the customers are their customer, uh, the, the readers, um, and then the producers come to them, uh, which is, I just think, super, super interesting. No, that's great. That's, I had, n- had never thought about it that way. That's, that's, and it's true. It's completely true. And that's why Facebook has so much power. I mean, if you watch just the casual person pick up their phone, the chances that they're going to open the Facebook app first are so high. Incredible. They they decide what you're going to be entertained by, and that that is a tremendous sword to yield. Yeah, or and and yield. informed by, which is the whole issue that's come up recently with the the issue with the Facebook trending stories. Yeah, that's an interesting yeah. thing. Should we touch on that a little bit? Yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, so um, for listeners who haven't been been tracking, um, there was basically, you know, there there are mixed um, feelings about how true it is. But basically, not in the news feed itself, but in the little trending news widget on desktop in the top right, um, or on mobile when you tap into an empty search field, you see hand curated top news that um, Facebook thinks you would be interested in, and the news story um, that that. Um, basically alleges that they had talked to someone who used to work on that team and they said it was um, anti-conservative. And the blow-up from that has been unbelievable. And the the interesting takeaway is, boy, if the blow-up from that little thing has been that big, that little thing that, you know, half of you probably haven't even seen and most of you probably have never clicked on, people give Facebook a tremendous amount of credit for having this like agnostic algorithm. So can you imagine if they were doing anything in the, the newsfeed algorithm to, to tilt one way or another? I mean, they, they're, they're viewed as like this arbiter of the truth and there's this pure clean algorithm that decides mm-hmm. what you look at. And I think that that trust that they've instilled in people is, is powerful. A, a crack itself. has emerged though in the past month. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Very, I think very, very dangerous for them. But it speaks to their power, and yeah, it speaks yeah. to that, that whole flipping of yeah. you, know, you aggregate the users. Yep. You aggregate as long as users are coming every day to Facebook as a as a producer as a publisher, you you have to be there. Yeah, right. absolutely. This gets right back to what we said last episode that their crown jewels are engagement, and it's it's engagement and time on site and just how much of your life you're giving to Facebook, and that's yeah. the power that they they wield. And uh, interesting to contrast that with. Snapchat too from the last episode, which is, you know, they've said like, we're not gonna, we're not, you know, funky algorithms. We're not tracking you. We're not anything. We're like, you watch the stories you want to watch and you follow the people you, uh, you want to follow. And it's hard to discover things on Snapchat. Hmm. Um, hmm. Interesting. It is. All right. Uh, should we move on to conclusion grading? Yeah. Yeah, um, this this is an easy A for me. I mean, I think that like they they really couldn't have done any wrong. They, um, I don't think that this acquisition necessarily made it so that they were going to go this direction. I think that um, this is the, doing something like instant articles is a natural course, and it, it, they would have done it maybe just like slightly less beautifully. Mm-hmm. But I think um, you know, great people to pick up. They're, they they were great leaders at Facebook. Just talking mm-hmm. to friends that that worked with Mike, and um, I think that. Um, only, only good things. Yeah. I, I agree. I'm just thinking, I, I think you're right though. If they, if they hadn't acquired push pop press, they would have done this anyway. It just would have been less beautiful. Um, so in that sense, it was probably really a great acquisition for them. I don't think they spent that much. I mean, we know, we don't know, but they probably didn't. Um, yeah, I give it a, I give it an A too. I think what's holding me, what's nagging at me is, is there is an element of, of creepiness to instant, to, to Facebook, as we were talking about this crack that's emerged one and two, um, could there have been something, um, bigger that push pop press could have been, I don't know. This was a great buy for Facebook. No doubt. Do, do you mean within Facebook? No, I, not necessarily. I, I think we typically, to, to lay out the criteria for how we grade these, it's usually imagining that you are a shareholder of yeah. the, 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 the acquirer. acquirer. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what else they would have done within Facebook that would have been great. 
Um, so yeah, hey, but I feel like Todd's got some. Well, what was the thing? Did you say it was paper that they worked on? What, uh, what was the yes. Uh, yes, inside paper. Facebook? Well, I mean, shouldn't that have been if that had been like a runaway hit? Then shouldn't have been an A. I don't know. Uh, I didn't have the plus. That, okay, yeah. <laughs> I got yeah. So I'll give it a B plus. I'll uh, reserve the right to move that to an A if they fix the damn plug-in. Did I just get <laughs> you guys a? Uh, did I get you a uh, explicit language warning there just now? No, no, okay. no, no. Okay. We're, okay. We're I can good. say damn. All right, good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, it's interesting that the only the only thing that I think could lower it. You're, you're raising an interesting point. Is is this a strategically good idea for Facebook? Like, should they yeah, be this, focusing this is so hard uh, on on news and not just what you would discover that already? lives on facebook mm-hmm. i think it was brilliant strategically. yeah totally i mean yeah. the the whole notion that they become the platform and they host it they serve it up they're they're in control from facebook facebook's perspective it's hard to see how it's bad so if facebook's goal is engagement and they want to keep you in the facebook experience and ecosystem longer and they really want to be the internet to you we've seen social We've seen publishing. What's next? What else lives within mm-hmm. Facebook that's not currently within Facebook that will be the next instant articles? Mm-hmm. Well, well, live that they're investing yeah. hugely in mm-hmm. television. Um, of course, they they did this with games for a while. It'd be interesting to see if that was you know reincarnated in a new way. Of course, virtual reality. Yep. With Oculus. Yep. Yeah, li- live is a whole other topic. Yeah, we've been experimenting with that too. It's totally ah, changed cool. the way we think about video. Oh, I'm really? Yeah. What? It, what so, uh... so we've been doing live streaming, um, and we we now have a debate every time: YouTube or Facebook? YouTube or Facebook? And mm. in the past month, the balance has shifted to Facebook because wow. you just see instant engagement. Have you guys tried Periscope or? We or... tried that a little bit. Yeah, Periscope and. Um, have you tried Snapchat at all? No, no. Snapchat's one where we're not as advanced as we should be, honestly. And that's part of the problem as a publisher. It's like, where do you put your resources? Yeah. And it's like the, there was that ad, the joke, where the two executives are going up the elevator and the two bike messengers are talking about some hot new social network. Sometimes it can feel like that. Like, yeah. And you never know exactly when to jump on board. Pinterest is another one where we have not gotten as much traction. Yeah. Um, but, but live. But Facebook live on live, Facebook has been big for you guys. It has. Now, we're not monetizing it yet. Um not directly. Is, is anyone? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's an option at this point. Um, I don't think so. I mean, yeah. you could you could hawk products while you're talking live on, um, yeah. but that wouldn't be as part of a Facebook product. Yeah. And now Facebook's got the whole thing too, where uh, publishers can actually do sponsored content. So they sell the sponsored content, and they've got the in the Facebook business interface, they've got the little handshake icon. And so that's opened up new options too. So I long way of saying Facebook is finally starting to make it where it's financially at least worth exploring as a publisher versus just putting your stories on there and hoping that you get traffic back. Yeah. That, that's the big shift that we've seen. And, and did you see that? Uh, you mentioned that it's with live video, there's the debate between the two. Um, it, with pre-recorded video, are you seeing the same thing where you're, you're going, yeah, let's put it on Facebook and not on YouTube? No, we aren't. And okay. in part, that's because live is just such an interesting thing to do right now. Yeah. Um, and, and so we're still very much keyed into YouTube. Although, no, I take that back. We do. We're now posting it on both mm. YouTube and Facebook after the fact. But the reason it's a debate an either or debate is because our equipment, some of our equipment, you can't simultaneously live broadcast uh, to both. Whereas you can obviously later upload to both. Yeah. Right. What, uh, 
Is there a particular um, event or live event that you've done that you think is like really example of, of the future? Of- yeah. So um, we've been doing tours. Uh, so oh, in fact, cool. we did a tour of the Facebook headquarters here. It was kind of, it was very meta. Very. <laughs> and so and I joked to Mike Schrepfer, their CTO, I said, yeah, we're going to be trying this out on a little social network you might've heard. And he thought I was actually talking. He didn't get the joke. He thought I was talking about some <laughs> others, like total paranoia. He thought we were like streaming on something he'd never heard of. And I said, no, no, I'm, we're doing it on Facebook. We're, doing, we're live streaming on yeah. down to lunch. Yeah. Um, but even just, you know, the quick stuff, you know, you've got your phone. Obviously that's fully produced. We've got a handheld mic and we're walking around with him, you know, streaming to a box that goes to Facebook. But just, just the whole notion of being a reporter or being anybody out there, being able to pull out your phone and immediately broadcast to a giant audience. Now, of course, this has been around for a while with, you know, Ustream and those kinds of things. But right. it gets to your point. Facebook has the user base. And yep. so it changes everything. Yep. And it has your user base. That's right. Because it's, it's people, it, it, presumably people that are fans of GeekWire on Facebook see this right at the top of their news feed when you're live. Right. Exactly. Hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's changed the dynamic a lot now that it just seems like there's been a cascade of, of changes over hmm. the past year, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Facebook is investing heavily in all this stuff. They are. All right. Should we uh, get to the carve-out? Let's do it. All right. Uh, Todd, you want to go first as our guest? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, my carve-out is actually another podcast. Love it. But it touches on themes that you all touch about. And so I'm going to be very specific here. Gimlet Media's startup podcast now I'm sure a lot of people watch. Oh, listen, yeah. listen, here's what here's the dynamic that happened with this. A lot of people listened to the first season, which told the story of Alex Bloomberg, the former This American Life yep. rep- reporter journalist, starting his own company, mm-hmm. uh, which was fantastic. And then season two kind of sucked. Honestly, yeah. they, they, they well, didn't, didn't the dating ring shut down? Is, is that what happened? Yeah, yeah. It, it was. A, it was it, I, I personally, I personally didn't. I was not into that episode. That that whole season, I, I, I suffered through it. Season three, if you got, if you got lost in season two, go back and start okay. again on season three. And I don't want to ruin it, but they do this great. They do a story where they 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 tell the how can I do this without ruining for everybody? They tell the story of a startup and its founding, and then do a reveal. And you they tell you at like I think it's at the end of the second episode what the startup is that they've been talking about and it's one that it's one that everybody knows oh, it's one cool. that you've you've featured on one of your episodes last oh, fall wow. you, oh. you, you'll as soon as you start hearing you'll let be like oh yeah that's I know what company oh, that is yeah, but a lot of this. people out there won't know yeah. like casual listeners not in the tech industry won't know which company they're talking about so anyway, that's my carve out startup. Uh, episode or startup season three, the first couple episodes. God, I love I love the teaser. I'm like, that, that, <laughs> That's, I, yeah. I'm unspoiled. This is great. You're a good pitch man. Good, good. <laughs> uh, I'll I'll go next because it's it's somewhat related. Unless you have a, another podcast, not is not yours audio audit, auditorially related? Mine, no, mine are <laughs> no. the okay. words. Okay, um, so I have my carve out for the week is uh, something to listen to your podcasts on. Super interesting. I read this um, article on Back Channel, uh, which is part of Medium, which is Medium's um, tech uh, collection. Which is such um, a great I guess name. you will. Uh, it is a good name. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the title of the piece is called "What If the Future of Technology Is in Your Ear?" And it's about this um, this Bluetooth earpiece uh, that. Uh, fits in your ear. It looks like a hearing aid. You you really can't. It's you can buy it in a variety of skin tones, and you can't tell it's there. 
Um, and it's made by made in China by some Chinese company, and you can buy it for like eleven dollars on Amazon. Uh, I bought it for eleven dollars uh, when uh, the piece was written. It was thirteen dollars, uh, and it connects to your phone via Bluetooth, and and it, you can stream audio to it. You can stream music. You can stream podcasts. You can stream audiobooks. Um, you can talk to it uh, via Siri, and the whole the article is about like the device is you know kind of janky, like but but it's amazing for like eleven dollars. Um, and then you can like talk to Siri in your ear, and it's like it's like the movie Her, like exactly it, it's that, and it's eleven dollars on Amazon. Um, the article is really good, um, and then the device, like it's I listen to all my podcasts and audiobooks on it now when I'm driving, when I'm walking, when I'm wow. it's just it's just in my ear, and nobody knows it's there. It's pretty cool. Wow. <laughs> just wait till Siri's good, and then it'll be uh... yeah, right. We're we're, <laughs> we're waiting on that iOS ten maybe WWDC. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, mine is an article on Medium by Andy Dunn, the founder of Bonobos, or Bonobos, as I've, I've heard it both ways, called The Risk Not Taken. And it's this really great reflective piece uh, about different points in Andy's life, one when he was starting Bonobos um, and, and one event many years earlier, uh, really just about times when he's faced a difficult decision but already sort of knew the answer and uh, he calls it the little, the little voice, a little, little something on his shoulder. And uh, it, it, it shows up and, and he looks over and he doesn't recognize it at first. And then um, he realizes, oh, my decision's already made and I, I have to go do that thing. And it's a really interesting play out of the two different paths that you could go, taking the risk and not taking the risk. Mm-hmm. It's really poetically written, um, really, really smart guy. And... Um, you know, re- really great for any readers who are sort of um, looking to try and figure out: should I take the risk? Should I not take the risk? Or, or maybe perennially thinking about those things. Hmm. So um, that is good. So, uh, what's the name of the article again? The risk not taken by okay. Andy Dunn, and uh, that'll be in our show notes or the the show description. You can hit the little little icon next to this episode and find the link. Uh, before great. we wrap up, can we? I, I think we need to uh, to talk about this for a minute the, at the meta level. We just did this episode about. Facebook and instant articles and publishing and uh, two of our three car well all of our carve outs were media yeah. related um, and uh, two of them were on medium and one was a <laughs> podcast and these are all new forms of journalism and publishing that um, are outside the bounds of Facebook really uh, and in a lot of ways for now uh, for now for now <laughs> uh, but it's interesting that like just when you think the um, just when you think the walls have closed around the garden, you know, there are flowers springing up outside. <laughs> wow. Speaking of poetic. <laughs> All right. Before we wrap up here, Todd, where can our listeners find you? Geekwire.com. It's that simple. And, awesome. Uh, I'm Todd Bishop on Facebook, on uh, Twitter. Also so, probably on Facebook. Uh, and on yeah, Facebook. Yes. <laughs> Big thank you to Todd. Uh, this has been awesome. Uh, uh, this is really exciting for me. Like I said, I'm a, I'm a loyal listener. I see the... Are you going to listen to this episode? I, uh, you know, I'll probably wait a month. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how I tend to do things. Nice. So, yeah. No, I, I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thanks yep. for coming. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Huh.